Thanks for listening in to the debut episode of the Armenian Music Podcast. I'm Rafi Maneshian. Today's episode is entitled, An Armenian in America, my interview with Arad Dinkchan. track of Homecoming from Night Art's 1986 RCA Novus debut album called Picture. My first guest on this podcast series is composer and musician Ada Dinkchan, who hails from New Jersey. Before we get into my conversation with Ada, I wanted to say thanks for listening in. I created this limited podcast series in order to explore aspects of Armenian musical culture that I thought may interest you. I'll be taking a wide lens and taking a look at the past, present, and future of our musical heritage. The plan is to take this season by season in hopes of focusing on quality rather than quantity. As such, I will have 10 episodes this season, with each new podcast dropping on the first Tuesday of every month. If all goes well, a second season will be produced, and so on. A little about me. I was born and raised in the Chicago area, and have been involved in the Armenian music scene since 2001 through my record label, Pomegranate Music. Over the years, I've met a ton of interesting people. In some ways, I wanted to use this podcast as a platform for you to meet them, as well as see the work that they're doing. Podcasting is new to me, so I hope that you'll stay patient with me as we grow together. And now, on to the interview. For most of you, Ada Dingshan needs no introduction. Born and raised in New Jersey, the son of a famous Armenian singer in Onik Dinkchan, Ada eventually carved out a career of his own. To some, Ada is known as an influential composer. To others, he is known as one of the most respected oud players in the world. I could go on and on, but I think it might be best for Ada to tell his own story. What originally was planned for a one-hour interview continued for almost two and a half hours. Because of the length, I'll cut these interviews into three parts, which will air on June 2nd, June 9th, and June 16th, with the final episode unveiling my planned format for shows going forward. Due to COVID-19, this interview was recorded using Skype audio on May 23rd, 2020. As such, there may be some technical imperfections. However, I feel fairly confident that once you hear Ada tell his story, those imperfections will fade away. This first part 
will explore up until his days with Nightark. So once again, my conversation with Ara Dinkchan. Hey, Ara, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Excellent, excellent. So as I understand it, you're uh, in New Jersey. We've got COVID-19 going on. Everybody's staying home. And we've got a, a pretty tough situation out there. As a musician and as a composer, uh, how has this kind of affected you um, creatively and also with, with some of your concerts? Well, like every other performer, uh, instantly every tour and recording session and concert and even lesson uh, was suddenly uh, canceled. Um, and so that has kind of been devastating, uh, especially for those of us who rely on that as, as our income. But uh, we're not alone, you know, throughout the world, there are people who are suffering because of this. Um, but then, you know, every situation presents you with an opportunity to do something that you otherwise would not uh, be able to do. So here we are stuck at home. That means there are so many projects that, that require time and attention. Well, this is the time to do those things. Excellent. And, you know, certainly one of those projects is a video that just was basically released not more than a week ago that is in some ways going viral. I mean, it, it's gotten almost 60,000 views on YouTube. Who knows how many on Facebook? And that's a performance of one of your iconic compositions called Pictures, going back to your first album. And with regards to Picture, you had a lot of international artists you know, on this virtual uh, video that you did. Uh, could you explain who some of these artists were and what they mean to you and the reason that you did it? Because, um, you know, everybody seems to be hitting Facebook, uh, Facebook Live these days, but to have somebody of your stature bring other people on, I thought was uh, pretty compelling. And obviously the public agrees with all the views that you're getting in such a short amount of time. Well, the project, to be honest, was not my idea. Uh, I'm not a big uh, self-promoter. Uh, it was actually um, uh, the idea of a, a group in Turkey that I have worked for many years with, uh, and they are known as Kardeş Türküler. Uh, they're a, a music group uh, that uh, actually their name means Songs of Brotherhood, and their whole identity is to present songs of the people who have inhabited uh, Turkey throughout history. So virtually every one of their concerts um, has Turkish, Kurdish, Armenian, Greek, uh, Arabic, uh, you know, all of these songs uh, presented. And in some cases, uh, um, there's, there's some political issues uh, to, to do that, but they have become very, very dear friends. And they actually contacted me and said, you know, we're all stuck here. We'd like to kind of unite not only the music, uh, you know, communities out there, but but the human communities out there with your song. Would you allow us to do that? And if, I was honored, you know, and yeah. they were they asked, you know, to contact Eleftheria uh, Arvanitaki, who's, you know, iconic Greek singer. Um, and I, I told them you, you need to contact um, this uh, Israeli singer who made it a big hit. Uh, in Israel, his name is um, Yoav Yitzhak, and mm -hmm. I said, uh, and also it was just just recorded in in Turkey in Armenian by a, a an Armenian singer. Uh, 
uh, name yeah. Mara Iva. So let's let's kind of represent, you know, all those uh, languages and and cultures. And they, you know, because I'm not very computer savvy, they told me what to do. Okay, first, can you please play it and send <laughs> it to us? And, and here's the click track. And then, oh, can you videotape yourself and this and that? Oh, I did my best. And but they did all the uh, the editing and uh, and it it turned out it turned out to have the right feeling, which is which is one of unity. That's awesome. And you know, actually, um, as an Armenian, as an Armenian American, I was really happy to hear the Armenian language set to to your music. It hasn't been done often, and um, so for me, it was I think very very special. But it was actually even more special to see people from historically, um, I would say, contentious backgrounds uh, come together on this. And Ada, I, I will say that I, I've known you um, for a little while now, and uh, you're, you're really, a, truly a humanist. And I think that I think a lot of people strive to, to try to get to the understanding and uh, the perspective that you have, which is that music is different, but it definitely can connect and bring brings people together. And why do you think that your music is so relatable? Because you've never really written words to any of your compositions. You've left it to other people. What is it about the sound, the composition, the soul of the music that you found and that you've kind of put together that makes it so compelling for people to, you know, put, put lyrics to it? And, and sometimes these lyrics have different meanings. Well, uh, Rafi, the the answer to that is actually uh, quite personal and deep for me, but I, I will share it with you and your listeners. Thank you, Ar. The If indeed my music does reach people, I believe it's because uh, when when these songs come to me, and, and I, I say it that way because I think we should be careful about taking too much credit like we are some kind of creators. I don't, I don't, I, you know, my, one of my CDs is called the song finder for our finding songs yeah. as opposed to creating, you know, anyway, uh, when these songs come to me, I, I don't hear an, an instrument or an oud or what have you. I, I hear a voice and hmm. more often than not, that voice is my father's voice. Interesting. I hear the human voice and I believe that, uh, a, a melody that is relatable to to the human voice and to the average person is uh, is the answer to your question. Well, I, I will say this is that the voice that you've sound that that you've found basically and you've shaped and interpreted has moved a lot of people, millions of people. and um, you know we're we're talking about having homecoming repackaged as Dinata as one of the closing songs of the Athens Olympics back in the 2000s. Um, also during Navruz in parts of Eastern Turkey, Western Armenia, um, you know, over a million people basically um, listening to your music. There's some sort of an emotional connection to your, your tunes or the tunes that you found. And um, that, that's what makes you incredibly special, I think. And so I, I think you should give yourself a little bit of credit for finding those songs or having those songs find you and be interpreted through you because it, it's not every day and it's not every composer that is able to do that. 
Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. I'm not going to say I had nothing to do with it, but if, but if there is a, a depth to it, um, that depth is not from my life in particular, but, but obviously from the lives of my ancestors that I, I have, uh, I've, I've tried to connect with, you know, we, we Armenians have a, not just a tragic uh, past, but but a very uh, deep and proud past. And um, I think there should be some sort of uh, dignity as well as emotion in in the music. And so if 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 what you say is true, um, I think it's because I've connected to my ancestors. It's definitely my perspective, and it's the perspective of of really you know millions of people that have listened to your music. And, um, and I appreciate your humility, but, um, it is what it is, <laughs> but, you know, speak, speaking of kind of your Armenian roots and your Armenian background, um, and to kind of take from one of my favorite albums in your catalog in Armenian in America, which we'll talk a little bit about, you know, in, later in this particular interview, uh, what was it like growing up as an Armenian in America, specifically in New Jersey? I mean, what was the environment? family-wise, musically, that you kind of grew up in as a kid? Of course, I have nothing to compare it to, but I could tell you that um, I learned to speak English when I went to uh, kindergarten. We spoke Armenian in the house. Um, all of my parents' friends were Armenians. Uh, the church uh, it was every Sunday. Uh, Armenian school was every Saturday. Um, choir no, I'm sorry, chorus rehearsal. My parents belonged to a chorus called the Kusan Chorus with Krikor Pidejian conducting. Uh, that was every Thursday. Um, so, uh, of course, my father, Wanli uh, Dinkjan, is the singer. So every house party, there was singing and music. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what I grew up with. Uh, I had nothing to compare it to. And, and uh, it was fantastic. I was very fortunate with my father being who he is, I got to learn to play on the stage. When your father is the leader of the band, uh, you know, not too many people could complain, what is the kid doing here? So I was lucky <laughs> to virtually learn the Dumbeg, starting with the Dumbeg on the stage, and uh, it was a, a, a blessed uh, childhood. So when you say that you learned on the stage, um... It was quite a stage where you made your debut and you were quite young. Could you kind of go into that a little bit? Well, you, you know, in 1964 uh, and 65, the World's Fair came to New York and uh, the Armenians uh, in the area were asked to present, uh, you know, concerts and, and, and uh, folk dance uh, concerts, etc. And, uh, and that was my not my professional debut because I had gone on some gigs with my father as a little five-year-old, <laughs> uh, but, but the first major gig was the New York world's fair in front of tens of thousands of people. And I remember the, the Oud players were John Berberian and George Mergadichan, and you know, like, and that generation. And, and I was this little six-year-old uh, with my feet, that didn't even reach the floor <laughs> holding my dumbbag, but taking it dead seriously, you know, uh, I, people would point and say, oh, look how cute. And that, that always offended me because I, I, I took it as serious then as I do now. It's, it's music. This is music. And I, I just wanted to be uh, 
part of that that magical world. Absolutely. And um, if I'm not mistaken, it was the World's Fair you said, right? Yes. The New York World's Fair. Yeah, which is uh, you know quite a quite a stage to be on. Um, obviously, Ada. I mean, you're not. I mean, I I don't call you an Armenian musician. I call you a musician and a composer. That's the way that I view you. I, I think that your music, again, it, it spans all borders. But again, this Armenian in America concept and theme, um, I could really you know, relate to that uh, because we, we had a very specific you know, American upbringing. Um, but as far as your oud playing is concerned, um, number one, how, did, how and when did you switch from, let's say, the Doombeg to the oud? And this is something I've always kind of wanted to know. Were you self-taught, or did you actually have a teacher that, or teachers that you studied with? Uh, you know, aside from, let's say, the recordings that you've been collecting for, for a while, is there anybody that actually kind of sat down with you and you took formal lessons, um, much like people take lessons with you in a very dedicated fashion? So oh, there's a lot there. So let me, uh, let me just tell you that uh, when I was, you know, yeah, five, six years old, my my parents um, in their bedroom there was an oud, and back then there were no oud cases, so it was just kind of there. And my parents had told me you could go anywhere in the house, but you cannot go in the bedroom because there's this very delicate instrument there, and you're not allowed to touch it. Well, you don't have to be a, a child psychologist to know. Therefore, that was the only thing I wanted to touch because it was it was uh, taboo. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I would get home from school at three o'clock. My father didn't get home until six o'clock. My mother was in the living room sewing. I would sneak into that bedroom. At first, I would just kind of pluck a string and run. Then a few weeks later, as I got braver, I would hold it, you know, try to pluck a melody. Well, after a year or two went by, I'm sitting on the floor on the side of the bed, kind of playing a little bit. And my father came home at 4.30. And at first he was ready to, you know, yell at me. What are you doing? But he saw that I was playing and respecting the instrument. And after that, I was allowed to uh, to continue. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm self-taught as, as most people are. Uh, when I got to be, just to answer your question directly, yes, indeed, the recording things were by far my, my, my greatest teachers and continue to be. Uh, but I did take, I would say, four or five lessons with John Berberian, maybe a, maybe a few more. But mm -hmm. John, as, as great of an oud player as he is, you know, I would be waiting, okay, show me. And he'd say, well, uh, do it like this. And then he'd play something incredible. <laughs> you know? Yes. yes. Um, so... So honestly, you you have to you have to spend time. There's there's no there's no substitute for the time that you spend on your instrument, exploring, making mistakes, coming up, up, up upon something that you do that nobody else does just by accident, and having that become part of your repertoire, and just you know over the years, uh, just keep going. You know your signature sound is as somebody. Um... I, I played the violin as, as a kid and through high school, and then um, I, I guess the oud found me one way or another. 
and um, you know, I, I had I had lessons with a few um, uh, you know, oud masters. The the one thing that has made me that you do very different than most of the oudists that I've kind of followed over the years is your right hand plectrum is is very unique and it's very very different than others that I've seen. I've seen others that have a very wild um, kind of plectrum style. Uh, John Barbarian has a very powerful kind of plectrum style, but you, you keep it really soft and delicate and really close to the strings. Is that something that you kind of developed on your own or did you, um, did you pick that up from somebody else as well? I, that I did not pick up from anybody. Um, and I wasn't conscious of any of that until it started being pointed out to me by students and people like you, like, oh, you hold the pick that way or you have this sound or that. It wasn't conscious, but what was conscious was my greatest desire was to produce a sound, a tone, where if I played one note, anybody who heard it would say, not, oh, what a great player, but, oh, what a beautiful instrument that is. That has always been uh, my goal as far as performing. I wanted to break through to people who might see that instrument and think that it's something Muslim or something, you know, whatever, like, no, we don't like that kind of music, but that's why I, I would record, let's say, I don't know, Blackbird to, to say, look, look, listen to the sound of the instrument. And that had a lot to do with, with my technique or lack of. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because um, you know you just came out with a new album. I'm not even sure if a lot of people have it. Uh, it's, not, it's not even out yet. Uh, I just sent it to you. I, <laughs> I myself got it a couple of days ago, and it's being registered now on all the Spotify's and all that stuff. It'll take a few days. Good, good, and we're we're definitely going to get to that recording. And um, if you don't mind, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna basically go ahead and debut um, one of your songs on this podcast. Um, you know, down the road here, but. Let me just say this is that, again, from somebody who has been listening to music for a very long time, um, the one thing that really sets you apart is that there's a sweetness to your tone. Um, there's also a very meticulous approach with regards to, again, every single note that is made. So in some ways, I view you as a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to the sound, not the sound of the instrument, but the way that you go ahead and respect that instrument and respect the music. Um, because it, when I listen to this live recording, I, I mean, there's, there's nary a, uh, you know, a sloppy note on there. And that's pretty remarkable for an instrumentalist throughout a, you know, a two-hour concert. That, that's, that's almost unheard of. Well, uh, Rafi, you're very kind. And uh, I do respect your, your musical uh, taste and analysis, but, but I hear some sloppy notes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, perfectionist. So definitely. <laughs> um, so one of the things that um, maybe not a lot of people know that kind of follow you, Ada, um, is is that you actually you actually have one of the most complete, if not complete, Armenian seventy eight collections. I would say in the world. Um, is that, let's say, can you confirm or deny that, number one? And how did you start the process of collecting? 
Yeah, what what drew you to it? It's almost hypnotic. A collector is almost obsessive about what they collect. It can be anything. Dolls, not instruments, not dolls. We are obsessed. That's absolutely true. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, first of all, no, there is no such thing as complete collection. Um, I will go to my grave still seeking to fill in some gaps. Uh, and it's interesting for the record collector, what most people uh, don't realize is that it is the obscure, sometimes even terrible record that is the most desired because that's the one that didn't sell uh, or wasn't repressed and, and people threw in the garbage and therefore nobody has. Uh, some people have Caruso 78s, they think they're valuable. Yeah, but those sold millions, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I, I am always uh, looking to, to fill in the gaps to get the complete history of, of what our ancestors did, especially in this country, uh, you know, when they first came. Would you care to comment on how many 78s, not LPs, but 78s you've got that are associated with Armenian musicians or Armenian music? So it doesn't have to be an Armenian, obviously, but that there has to be an Armenian connection. Yeah, because when our ancestors first came here, uh, mostly against their will, uh, you know, to escape the genocide, uh, because uh, most of them spoke Turkish and uh, and and indeed sang Turkish, I do not differentiate between Turkish and Armenian when it comes to uh, these these recordings. Because, like I said, they were absolutely interchangeable. Most of the singers sang both and recorded both. So if if we agree with that. I could tell you I have over 6,000 Armenian and Turkish 70 kids. That's, that's incredible. And what was the process early on, like early on in your obsession, as far as going ahead and recording this? Obviously, you know, in the New York, New Jersey area, a lot of Dikana Gipsies. I'm sure your father had a ton of records. The people that you guys associated with had a ton of records, but at some point, that stock dries up and to get to 6,000, what, I mean, what was the journey and the path to obtain these? Great question, uh, Rafi. So my house, uh, just like every Armenian house had some of those 78 RPM records. Uh, they were either, uh, well, most of them were, were bought here either as imports or records that were pressed here. Um, uh, and indeed, many of the recordings from Turkey um, were then repressed here when the companies understood that there are these communities that we could sell them to. So um, again, you, you, there are all these subdivisions of recordings that were made here versus overseas. Uh, and this is, of course, before uh, recordings were coming over from Hayastan. Well, we, we can say that that started in the 1950s with the Melodia uh, yes. record label. But prior to that, uh, okay. So my father had some of these these records and I was obsessed with them. And uh, so it was one of the only things in my life that I, I have been aggressive about. Uh, and that is that I would ask every aunt and uncle and old person, uh, do you have records? Uh, can I borrow them, you know, to tape them? And nine times out of 10, they would say, not only we have them, but please take them. We don't want them. Our kids don't like them. 
Uh, they'll never play them. We don't have the machine to play them. They're taking up space, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I started acquiring collections from, from people. And then I started to organize them. And now I'm to the point where um, I know what's a, what's a gap, what I'm looking for. And that's what I, I seek. Why do you seek them? Is there a deeper meaning to this? I mean, um, when we're yeah. obsessed with things, when we're obsessed with things, like, for example, um, you know, when I was 14 years old, I my holy grail was making sure that I had all the Led Zeppelin LPs. Right. Um, then it basically kind of moved on to the point where I now I want to get all the Adadinkchen albums, you know. <laughs> so, and, you know, that's that's how people um, kind of view these things. There's Again, a it's a, it. an interesting question. And the answer is, I do not evaluate or judge the records because indeed something that I think is cool in 1970, like I, like you, was, uh, was a Led Zeppelin fanatic. I saw them six times when I was a kid. Um, that's after the Beatles broke up and broke my heart. So then I went to Led Zeppelin. Um, but what, what you love in 1970 is not necessarily what you're going to love in 2020. So I do not rate or evaluate the recordings. I just want to document them. And so the reason why I'm looking for the gap is because it will tell the whole story either of that particular artist uh, or that particular song. Look, I, I have a recording of Mer Hyrenik that was recorded in Thessaloniki, Greece in 1907. Is that the holy grail of... That's one, that's one of my holy grails. And there is six verses. Now, some of us may know the first verse. Some of us may know two or three verses. But how many of us know six verses? And where would we go to find it? So, I mean, to me, the, these, are, these are treasures. <laughs> they are treasures. And uh, I, I don't want to degrade what you're doing as saying that it's a work. Because it seems like it's a pleasure. And not only it's a pleasure, it's a huge responsibility. And I think um, one of the things that we should all be very thankful for, aside from your music, is the fact that you're documenting this stuff, much like Gomidas documented uh, folk songs you know, of the day. And obviously one of the other holy grails I would think, and I would assume that you have, are those 1912 Paris recordings with Gomidas and Shamuradin. Where would you put that as far as importance in your collection? Yeah, those are those are uh, culturally uh, priceless recordings, and indeed I have them. And I'd, I would just like to make a little discographical point about that. Those were recorded on the Orpheon record label, which was the first Turkish-owned record company. Um, they, at that time, determined that there were two musicians in Turkey that were in a totally different level stratosphere as far as their importance and those two musicians were Tanburi Cemil Bey and Gomidas Vartabed and indeed those two musicians were recorded on special series where their actual image their photograph appeared on the label uh, so even back then uh, and we're talking 1912 for those recordings but Rafi since you brought it up uh, I should tell you that yeah. a couple of years ago I, I uh, acquired a 78 on the, uh, it's called Concert Gramophone record label. 
um, that was recorded, uh, I think, I'm not sure, 1911 or something, in what it says, Alexandropol, which today is Gumri. And it, wow. is, it is Gomidas Vartabed himself singing a cappella. Now, those records were released on uh, Harold Hagopian's traditional crossroad records as the voice of Gomidas, but I never knew anybody to have the actual shellac, the actual record, physical record. Uh, even what Harold uh, used to press, I believe, was from tapes. And those recordings were also re uh, released on Melodia many years ago. But the actual 78s, I've never known anybody to have one. And so when I acquired this, my hands were, were shaking. Well, I mean, this is this is incredible news. And, I, and I'm glad that you brought up Harold Hagopian because Harold Hagopian, who is the son of Richard Hagopian, who is a very influential oud player, um, has played a tremendous part in the preservation and the marketing and the exposure of, of that era of music uh, through his incredible traditional Crossroads label. And so I, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you've acquired that uh, because it is so rare, but also, um, you know, Harold has done an incredible job um, with regards to you know, preservation and cleaning up those that stuff. And, and and that's actually, it's an art form and it's an obsession that uh, a couple of youngsters um, are, are continuing today. A, a fellow named Ian Nagoski. Yes. Um, and uh, I was just in touch with Harut Arakelian. Right. Uh, and I plan on actually interviewing them. Uh, as well, right, and, right, and I will, and I will say this: they have both um, really kind of thanked you for your encouragement and your support and kind of your guidance with regards to their obsession as well. So, well, sure yeah, you already knew that. This particular subject, uh, you know, to bed. Let's just let's just understand that these records and these recordings are not our possession; rather, they are our responsibility to preserve and to make accessible and available to future generations. Absolutely. Um, kind of kind of transitioning to the oud itself and um, you know the history of the oud um, as we kind of uh, kind of ramp up to to your recordings. Um, obviously some of the very influential oud players from that era, Udi Hurant Kenkulian and Marco Melcon, um, are there others that you basically gravitated toward in that era of 78s? Well, uh, you know, Udi Hurant, to me, uh, he was like the soul of the instrument. And when he played alone in particular, um, he went someplace that, that didn't, he didn't seem to go when he was playing in an ensemble. That's just my opinion, um, and and indeed, as you're suggesting, his his playing uh, was tremendous and remains uh, tremendously influential t for myself. And I got to tell you that there are times where I have these moments of of self doubt and oh my god, I don't even know how to play I, one note. What am I going to do? And so what I do is I go back to Udi Hurant as sort of like my foundation, and I remember, oh yes, okay, that's how it's supposed to be, and. I I can jump off from there. But later on, uh, of course, Udi Hurant's recordings were very accessible, uh, even in the earlier generations here, the 
his recordings were imported here and the Armenian community knew of him. He came here for the first time in 1950 and then started coming uh, all the time. Much less accessible and less well-known was the Greek uh, Ud master, Yorgo Bajanos. Now, his name didn't appear on the recordings as uh, because he wasn't singing. Uh, but once you once you hear him, he was like the Art Tatum, if you know the, the jazz pianist Art Tatum. Uh, oh, yeah. The, okay, he was like the Art Tatum of the Oud. And so once I I was aware of of that, uh, that he, so if Udi Hrant is the soul, then then Yorgo was the brain, and uh, we still have not been we meaning subsequent generations still have not been able to uh, meet what Yorgo Bajanos accomplished on the Ud. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, as we kind of uh, ramp up to the Manol album at some point here in this conversation, I think it's very important to acknowledge that ethnic Armenians were considered some of the more prominent uh, proponents of the Turkish style oud, which is the smaller oud compared to the Arabic oud. Why do you think that that was? And what is this inherent connection between Armenians and the oud? And, and you know, kind of... It filtered through America, obviously with Udi Hurant, but then you had the likes of John Berberian, you had the likes of Richard Hagopian, Chik Ganimian, uh, John Bilizikian, uh, George Magurdichian. These were all titans uh, of, of the Ud in their era, and some of them still, still so today. So wh wh what is that connection, and where does it come from? I believe you can attribute all of that to Hurant's uh, appearance in this country. Uh, and as you probably know, he did not come here to play. He came here uh, to be operated on to restore his sight, to have his sight restored. Uh, and that did not work. Um, so before he went back, the Armenian communities in Boston, New York, and I believe Fresno put little, uh, you know, concerts together before he was sent back to Turkey. And um, it was uh, a revelation to these communities who knew him only from his records, but then to see and hear him live, um, he went back to Turkey uh, realizing that he had discovered a whole new audience. And indeed, the, those first few visits, uh, Richard Hagopian, as, a, as an example, uh, uh, was, was there as a kid and just fell in love immediately and uh, wanted to learn the Oud. And... So Hurant is the reason there are so many Oud players in America. He's the singular uh, reason, and, and his influence uh, continues generations later. Um, Interesting. Regarding Turkey, well, we could say that Armenians are creative and talented artists. Um, one thing that should also be kept in mind is in the earlier stages, um, women, Muslim women were not allowed to perform or to sing on stage. Uh, therefore, many of the early uh, singers of Turkish music and uh, Turkish recordings were Greeks or Armenians or gypsies, in other words, non-Muslims. And, and that had something to do with it also. Interesting. Um, this kind of leads up to what I think for me is one of your most important 
and one of my favorite albums in your discography. And it's something that is not um, as well known, I think, um, as a you know, as opposed to let's say your Night Arc albums. Um, the conversations with Manol is it's a fascinating hypnotic album. It's an intimate album. It's just you and the oud. But when we say the oud, we have to preface it by by saying it's a Manol oud. And there's some people out there that may not know what a Manol oud is. For those who do know about oud makers, the, the name Caribbean comes up a lot. But for those really in the know, they know what a Manol is. Um, can you explain a little bit about who Manol was and what makes his oud making and his oud so special? Uh, I'll do my best, but since you mentioned Caribbean, uh, we we need to again refer back to Udi Hurant, who would bring many Caribbeans with him on his subsequent trips here because so many young boys wanted an Oud, and he uh, he had this thing going with Omni Caribbean in Istanbul, uh, make me some Ouds, and he brought them all here. He would do one gig on them and then sell them like this is my Oud, but I'm going to sell it to you. <laughs> uh, oh, oh yeah. And that's why Caribbean's name became big in this country. Uh, everybody wanted a Caribbean because Udi Hurant was playing a Caribbean. Um, Manol, wh whose name is, the real name is Emmanuel Venos, so Emmanuel or Manol, um, was a Greek uh, Ud maker, uh, older than uh, only Caribbean. And just to put it simply, it, he's considered for the Turkish oud, there are two schools of oud making, Arab oud and Turkish oud. So for the Turkish oud, he's considered the Stradivarius of, of oud makers. Uh, if you were to ask right. why, of course it goes uh, just like a Stradivarius. It's not specifically the cosmetics. It is the tone, the beautiful yeah. round fat tone. Um, and, and so how did they do that? Well, b both Manol and Stradivarius had this ability to tap a piece of wood and hear the frequencies and the potential in that wood. That is not something you can teach. You can measure and duplicate, but to hear a, a, just a piece of a block of wood by tapping it and know what its potentials are, therefore choosing it, uh, this was a, a rare talent and, and he was blessed with it. Absolutely, and we should we should uh, mention that both uh, Caribbean and Manol and many of the famous oud makers of the day were based in in Istanbul, uh, which was in some ways I mean it was it was the intellectual um, center for Armenians. Yes, um, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, Manol had a, a shop on Istiklal Street in in Istanbul. Is that correct? I'm not sure. Okay, okay. Um, I did a little research on Manol, uh, especially with the availability of, of, of Manol. And apparently their family actually still um, authenticates real Manols. And um, I, I believe, uh, you know, in their explanation, he, he had a shop on, on really basically the, the most famous boulevard right. in, in Istanbul. Um, this leads me up to 
this incredible recording. And it's incredible for me because uh, there's a story behind it. And it's a story I actually don't know very well. Um, could you kind of explain a little bit about how you came to acquire the manol that you have now as part of your collection and how this recording came about? Because it's on the surface, it's very unusual, but it's also very you. <laughs> um, sure, I'll, I'll tell you the story behind that. The, I acquired that oud from, from a man named Jack Tatarian. Um, and at the time that I got it from him, the nut on the oud, uh, which is the piece where the strings lie uh, next to the pegboard, was, was broken. And therefore, the strings were virtually touching the neck, so I couldn't even play the oud. Uh, it needed some repair. So I took it to my dear friend, Haig Manukyan, who has since passed away, I'm sorry to say, a great oud player and a great oud repairman. Mm -hmm. um, and Haig had the oud for about a year. I, I was not in a rush to get it, although of course I was anxious, but I, didn't, I don't like to rush you know, that kind of work. Anyway, while that oud was in Haig's shop, uh, my dear friend Lola Kundakchan, who is an Armenian poetess, said that she wanted to record herself reciting some of her poetry and she thought it would be nice if there was some light oud in the background and would I be willing to record some oud, you know, anything I want in the background. I said, sure, I would be happy to. Hmm. So I called uh, my friend who has a, a home studio and I said, I'm going to come and I'm going to play some oud. I just need you to record it, you know, he said, okay, fine. Just before I was going to go to his house, Hyde called and said, your oud is ready. Oh, okay. So I took the oud, never having played it before, uh, sat in my friend's uh, studio. He put two microphones in front of me and he just pushed record. He, actually, he said, what are you going to play? I said, actually, I have no idea. It's the first time I've ever gone into a studio not prepared. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with being prepared, but this is, I don't even know what I'm going to do. So I said, just record. Let's see what happens. Well, he, he pushed record. And for the next hour, basically what I did was instead of playing the oud, I was listening to the oud. I was just kind of responding to the gorgeous tone. And I, I was kind of in awe of the, of the instrument. And just, there was this, I don't know how to describe it. I, I, I don't feel I was in control. I was just allowing whatever it was, the, the oud, to, to tell its story. And, and indeed, I always had this idea for a book that wouldn't it be great if the, some of these antique instruments could speak and tell us where they've been, on what stage, who has played them, under what circumstances, you know? And it's almost as if the oud was telling me its story. The reason I asked that question, Anna, is because um, I felt like there was a conversation there. And uh, just in listening to that particular recording, there was, um, there was an excitement. And, uh, it's almost like meeting somebody for the first time. Exactly. And I, I, could, I, could, I could really feel it on that particular recording, especially if you listen with some, a, good, a, pair, you know, a really good pair of headphones. And by the um, way, 
Rafi, so help me, so help me. Nothing was edited, nothing was deleted, nothing was added. It's exactly, it, that's what I played and nothing more, nothing less. Otto, my question to you is, were any of those now what they're called pieces, were they actually um, sketches that you had? Let's say, for example, Dialogue, um, the second, second or third track on that uh, album. Um, were these things that you were working on? Was it like Lola had got, gone ahead and you know, said, hey, I want to do this particular project. So you started thinking of some ideas? No. Or, um, or no, did you just like, walk in? Yeah, it was improvised from the very top. And, and the, the, the coda to this story is uh, when it was done, my friend, the engineer, his name is Joe Halajian, he said, Ara, I think this is your next CD. I said, no, 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 this is for my friend Lola. He said, well, you better go home and listen to it, you know. And <laughs> then I called Lola. She said, did you do it? I said, yeah, but you can't have it. <laughs> No, no. And, and I don't know what it is about you and accidental recordings, Ada, but um, some, some of my favorite albums that you've made, um, and one of them may include this new one uh, that hasn't really quite been released yet. Um, these accidental recordings are becoming um, quite, quite a habit. So, uh, oh, Rafi, uh, since, you, since you brought that, this up, you know, I, I got to tell you, at, uh, around the same time, I had uh, made this scene called Finding Songs, where I spent about $15,000, you know, flying to Greece and rehearsing and the best studios and the best musicians and the, the compositions and the arrangements and the mixing and the editing and the master of artwork and all of this stuff. And conversations with Manol cost me about $200. Isn't it, isn't it <laughs> and funny? It has a bigger cool. impact. It's, it's hysterical. I, I think, um, and you, you and I have, you know, shared some music. Um, you know, in the past, and you've been gracious enough to um, lend your compositions and your your incredible uh, musicianship to uh, some of the albums on my label. And um, I, I can tell you from from producing music for almost twenty years um, that there's something about a live performance or an impromptu performance that sometimes can take your breath away because um, it's unexpected. And as you kind of mentioned many years ago to me, there's a certain magic. Um, that that a studio cannot basically provide. It's almost like you know Glenn Gould when he was you know performing uh, on stage, you know, incredibly exciting, and then he went completely the opposite way into the studio, and he called those um, engineering feats in many ways. So I, I love I love that album. I love it. They were heavily edited. Every note was edited. So you're you're absolutely right. That concludes part one of my conversation with Ada Dingchun. Part two will be released on Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. will take us into the heart of his days with Night Arc, how he was signed, how his albums were virtually ignored in the United States, and the popularity of his music in Greece without him even knowing it. Before I debut a track from Ada's latest album, live at Princeton University with the Secret Trio and the New York Gypsy All-Stars, I wanted to mention a few albums that have been released on my own pomegranate music label here in 2020. Live in Paris 2017 by Vigan of Sepian was released in January of this year and represents capturing his first tour outside of Armenia. It was recorded on location at Anako in Paris, France, and features the great Duduk master Harutun Shukoyan 
composer and musician Hovard Enstadt, Mikhail Voskanyan bass player Gurgen Abedjan, and Gata band percussionist Artur Balcian. Another album you may be interested in that was released in February of this year is the first United States concert of Armenian folk rock pioneer Gormachitarian. This one is called Live in Boston 2002, and as some of you may know, Gore went on to move to L.A., where he had modest success as a solo artist, in addition to holding on to his duties as the lead guitarist of the band Lavelli. It's a fascinating document that features legendary Udist John Berberian on several tracks. You can find both digital albums on all reputable digital platforms, including Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, Amazon, and YouTube. To close out this podcast, as promised, here is a new track from Ada's brand new album entitled Live at Princeton University. This track is simply called Pilaf. Talk to you next time. Let's go.
All music featured on this podcast by Ada Dingchun and Night Arc are published by Creekor Music. This is a Pomegranate Music production.